You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. Defense mode. We're survivors. Like, help with them. In our head, but they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today we will be speaking with Dr. Anne LaCase, who is a program director of the Dana-Farber Partners Cancer Care Fellowship, which is the largest hematology-oncology training program in the country. She is an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and performs clinical research in lymphoma. In addition, she has a strong interest in young adults and co-directs the Center for Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology with Dr. Lindsay Frazier at Dana-Farber. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. LaCase. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. When we talk to physicians on these episodes, we like to know what brought them to their field of medicine. So for you, what brought you to the field of medicine, specifically hematology-oncology? So it's a bit of a long story. My father was an internist, and I grew up in a relatively rural Maine, uh, wanting to sort of follow in his footsteps. And then when I got to college, I was pre-med and had to take some other courses just to have a well-rounded education and really kind of fell in love with art history. So I sort of veered off for a while, (laughs) and I managed an art gallery in New York for about five years. So I'm very visually oriented. And then when I went back to medical school, I, during my first year, the hematology course was run by this amazing woman, Jane DeForge, and between her being an incredibly inspiring person, she took care of lymphoma patients and was uh, an amazing teacher, between that and the visual aspects of looking at lymphoma slides, and it just, it all kind of came together, and then caring for the patients, of course, was sort of the most important part. Uh, I think our patients are really quite amazing, and the the science in lymphoma is really incredible. So I lucked out. I have my dream job. That's awesome to have that art background. I mean, you saying that you're visually oriented, I think that really helps in the young adult side as well, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So when it comes to CLL, which is what we'll be speaking about today, which is chronic lymphocytic leukemia, What is that? When someone is diagnosed with this disease, what is it for them to understand? So CLL is a cancer of the B lymphocyte, which is one of your immune cells. It arises from what we call a bone marrow stem cell. Bone marrow stem cells give rise to all your blood cells, the white cells that fight infection, red blood cells that carry oxygen, and platelets that help prevent bleeding. And CLL arises out of a subtype of white blood cell called a B lymphocyte, whose normal job it is uh, to fight certain types of infections. 
and patients get a mistake in the machinery of that cell, and that cell starts to copy itself. So it's really uh, a malignancy of this white blood cell type. It is considered a slow-growing or indolent form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma because it arises out of a lymphocyte, and we'll probably talk a little bit later about the distinction. There, there are a couple of different subtypes, including small lymphocytic lymphoma, but it's really all the same disease. It's a cancer, slow-growing, arising out of B lymphocytes. Yeah, I know a lot of people aren't really clear with the distinction between CLL and SLL, what you just said, small cell lymphocytic lymphoma. People always ask us, you know, what's the difference between the two? And as you're saying, it's treated the same, right? Yes, it's really two forms of the same disease. In order to meet the formal definition of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, you have to have more than 5,000 B lymphocytes in the peripheral blood. For patients where that number is lower, we call it small lymphocytic lymphoma. Leukemia means in the blood, so you have to have enough cells in the blood to make that definition. Typically, patients with both CLL and SLL have disease by definition in the bone marrow, lymph nodes, often in the spleen and in the blood. It's just how much is in the blood really drives that distinction and we really think about it in the same way. The majority of patients present with CLL as opposed to SLL, but it is the same disease. Yeah, Yeah, because I've seen a lot of patients that are CLL slash SLL. And it can evolve over time. I think that's the other confusing part. Sometimes patients will present with an early presentation picked up on blood tests, and they have fewer than 5,000 cells in the blood. So they're technically small lymphocytic lymphoma, but as the disease progresses and the white count rises, then they become CLL. So it's sort of a, it's a continuum, and we really think of it as being the same disease. Yeah. It's just patients sometimes don't know where to go if they should go to information for leukemia or information for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. We have two online chats, and we just started a new one just for CLL, but of course we're having people with SLL on that, and before they were going to our non-Hodgkin lymphoma chat. So people are trying to see where they fit, but the treatment really would be the same because it's pretty much the same disease. It's the same disease. And I think sometimes it's confusing because it depends on what center you're treated at. Some places, the CLL patients are included within the leukemia group. I think it's more common that CLL, because it really is a non-Hodgkin lymphoma, are treated in lymphoma groups, but it is confusing for patients. Yeah, it's interesting that different centers treat different ways. Yes, yeah. (laughs) That almost makes me think of the challenge that many young adults face Being in a unique group when it comes to diagnosis and treatment and resources being available. So when I hear SLL and CLL having that confusion sometimes, I think of young adults who also find it confusing or can find it confusing to figure out where to go first. Yeah, that's a really great analogy. Uh, I think when you're in a unique subset and there isn't a center that's specific for your disease or your age group, you sort of have to figure out where you fit in. So yeah, I like that analogy. So we know that a risk factor is anything that increases a person's chance of developing cancer. So when it comes to CLL, is this something where they've linked it to certain factors or is it completely unrelated to anything else? What's the the science or the information behind that? So there are not a lot of identified risk factors for CLL. It is a disease that happens more commonly as people get older. We know that somewhere around 
15% of patients with CLL will have a family member with CLL or a lymphoma, so there does appear to be a genetic link, though still that means the majority of our patients do not have a positive family history. It is certainly not related to any diet or lifestyle issues that we know about. There have been some links to uh, herbicides and pesticides, though that remains very controversial. Agent Orange is one, and there, uh, some of the herbicides, digoxin and that sort of thing, may be linked, but it's very hard to definitively make these associations. I mean, know that men develop it more than women. Is there any reasoning for that, or is it just simply... By chance. I don't think that's, yeah, I, I don't know that anyone has really figured that out. You know, that may be related to genetics, but not really sure. And this is the only blood cancer, really. I know there's others that they're doing a lot of studies with, but for the past 10 years that I've been here, CLL has been the only one that I've heard of that has that true genetic link. It, it's small, but it's the one that has the true link where there has been studies to actually find that. Yeah, that's right. I think the genetic link is strongest. Uh, in CLL, occasionally we'll see other lymphomas where there are families where we see multiple cases. But, you know, there's some data to suggest if you look at family members, first-degree family members of patients with CLL, you can find abnormal B cells in you know, 17 or 18 percent of those patients, though many of them may, may never go on to develop the disease. So I think that's even stronger evidence that there probably is a genetic link. And when it comes to someone being diagnosed with CLL, because my understanding is that people can come in with no symptoms and then it's something that's pretty much caught in maybe a blood test or something like that. How does one present when they're diagnosed with CLL and does that vary from patient to patient? Yes, it definitely varies from patient to patient, but as you suggest, oftentimes it's sort of picked up incidentally. Someone has uh, a blood, blood counts checked and someone notices that the white blood cell count is elevated and there are too many lymphocytes. That's a very common way. Sometimes patients will have imaging done for another reason. They're in a car accident or they have a pneumonia and they'll be noted to have small lymph nodes in multiple different areas. That's another way we often pick it up clinicians. So if a patient is going in to see his or her primary care physician and that person feels lymph nodes on exam that are often, you know, they're rarely tender or uncomfortable. It's usually they're just found on exam and they're just kind of sitting there. You know, the typical B symptoms that we talk about in lymphoma, fevers, drenching night sweats, and unexplained weight loss are really quite uncommon in CLL, uh, except in the case of patients who have really very bulky or a large burden of disease. Some patients will present with a large spleen and may have symptoms related to that. You can have sort of vague discomfort on the left abdomen or weight loss from becoming full earlier, what we call early satiety. So those are some of the common ways patients present, but most commonly it's elevated white blood cell count, I would say. Well, what I'm finding is that since a number of illnesses have signs and symptoms similar to that of CLL, that's necessarily not the first thing, like you said, until a blood test is done. And so it's interesting to see or to read about the symptoms and the signs that are then linked to leukemia later on. As the disease progresses in the bone marrow, the, often the first symptom is fatigue when patients' uh, red blood cells drop. Is the patient anemic? Is there something going on in the lungs? You know, is there a problem with the heart? So I think, yes, they're very nonspecific symptoms, and anemia is very, very common. And I think the reason why we treat the majority of patients is for anemia.
Okay. Yeah, fatigue is a large issue. We had a podcast <laughs> for fatigue, and it's one of our most popular podcasts because I think people don't talk about it enough, but it's really one of the biggest quality of life issues for our patients. Yeah, fatigue is really hard because there's so many factors that can contribute both related to the underlying disease, related to sleep. A lot of our patients have insomnia because they're anxious or worried, which is completely understandable. Some of the medications we uh, prescribe make people tired. And I think there's always this sense, well, you just need to pick yourself up and, and get exercising. Well, these, our patients can't do that. And you really have to work with them to figure out how can we get them feeling better? And it's, it's a multidisciplinary approach. Right. And you know what? To your point, for that podcast, along with it having most listens, it also had more comments from people. So the people that listened to it felt the need to say, you know what? Thank you for actually talking about this. Thank you for bringing this topic up. Thank you for letting us know that it's not in our heads. It's something that actually exists. And is a problem for us. We can't sleep it off. You know, we can't just, like you said, we can't pick ourselves right, up right. because it can be very debilitating. Absolutely. And I think if you look at patients, you can't necessarily, a lot of our patients with CLL will be on chronic medication. You can't tell by looking at him or her that they're being treated. They don't lose their hair. They look pretty good. And when you look good, people assume, you know, if you're tired, then it's psychologic or something that you just need to work harder on combating, and it's really not like that. Right. So when the diagnosis is given and confirmed, how does the healthcare team then plan the treatment for that patient? So, you know, I think the first visit for any patient with any cancer, but, you know, with CLL, oftentimes we are not going to be recommending immediate treatment, and I think that requires even more conversation to really explain why we don't treat it immediately, what things to look for, and to really get people comfortable with this sort of active surveillance approach. So I think it's often a, a big educational session where, for me, I like to outline, you know, what is the disease? Why did you get it? Usually we don't know. What is the stage? Patients always want to know their stage, and I think it, it takes some time to explain that stage in, in these diseases is very different than solid tumors. And then, you know, why do we treat people? And when you need treatment, what are the treatments? And then I think you need to also talk about the supportive care aspects. So, you know, for that's sort of, for me, what I like to go through with a new patient, but a lot of time is spent on why don't we treat patients? Well, the data suggests that there is no benefit to treating patients early, and you want patients, hopefully, are going to live for many, many years with this disease, so you really need to balance the toxicities of any treatment. Most of our treatments that we have do not eradicate or cure the disease, so that also, you know, when you point that out and you can tell patients, yeah, we, can, we have very effective treatments, but we're in most situations, not able to eradicate every last cell, then it makes a little bit more sense that you're not jumping on it to treat it right away. And oftentimes, once people live with the disease for a while and are feeling well, then it will become the time when I'm saying, oh, I think it's, I think we're getting close. Oh, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, you know. Patients <laughs> really adapt really readily once, once they sort of understand and have a chance to you know, read about the disease or, you know, uh, go online to websites like yours and really understand that, you know, we're not crazy and in, in not recommending that they get treated right away. Sure. I know that when I was an information specialist here, we would get calls from CLL patients. And I think 
One of the hardest things for me was to talk to a patient that their personality really lent to being treated right away. So they heard the word cancer and they didn't understand that the watchful waiting or the watch and worry, as they say, uh, they didn't understand the whole concept. I mean, just, you know, being told you have cancer and then saying, well, we're, we're going to monitor you, we're not going to put you on any medication. For some personalities, that really didn't work well. I found myself giving them empirical research just to show that there is research out there to, to say that even if you're not treated earlier, you could still have good outcomes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think this is something we really spend a lot of time talking about. That's why I really like the term active surveillance. I think it it really, an active as opposed to watch and wait. Wait just seems like you're waiting for the inevitable badness to happen. And it's, you know, it's really not like that. And I think emphasizing to patients that our therapies have changed so dramatically over the past decade that, you know, we may not be using chemotherapy in the future upfront for the majority of our patients. We're already there. And as we learn more, we may be able to give shorter courses of treatment as opposed to indefinite treatment. And there are definitely advantages to being under surveillance if you don't require therapy. And, and I think the personality issue is a big issue for many of our patients because a lot of patients with CLL, it seems, are very analytic. I don't know. Uh, it, there seems to be a, a type. Sometimes we see patients who really like to read a lot. And I think empowering patients to have a sense of control over what's happening can be really important. And I know a lot of our patients will look at, you know, supplements or doing various things to change the course of the disease. And I always tell patients, you know, there's not really any great evidence that any of those things help with regard to the disease. However, you know, some some things like particularly exercise or massage or acupuncture, some of those are really helpful in giving people a sense of control and feeling like they own their life as opposed to being driven by this this chronic illness. Yeah, that sense of control is mostly lost after you hear the word cancer. And we're always trying to empower people to have some kind of control. We have a nutritionist that provides free nutrition consults, not just for patients, but for caregivers too, because caregivers also have the issue of wanting to help their loved one and, and have a little bit control especially when somebody is on active surveillance where they see their loved one being diagnosed and then the person isn't on treatment and they can't understand either. Right, and, and I think you know being open and, and discussing the goals of these supportive care interventions to make people feel better, to generally be in good health in case they need treatment, but sometimes it can evolve into family members or friends telling patients, you can't eat sugar, you can't do this, you can't do that, that's going to feed your tumor cells. And I think being very upfront from the beginning saying, we don't have any evidence that any of these things are true, and trying to keep families from, you know, it's the cancer patient, eat, 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 you know, and and patients are like, oh, no. And, (laughs) And then you get these dynamics within the family that aren't very useful for anyone. So I really try to spend some time laying that out up front because it's a question everybody has. That's great. That's great. A lot of our patients, they don't feel like they can talk to you because they have 15 minutes with you 
and they feel like they can't talk to you about their quality of life issues. And I think that we try to empower them to know that they can, but it's very important to really hear it from you that you know they should come with these types of questions. Absolutely, and I think you know, in oncology, it's not like primary care. I think most of us have more time to spend with patients, and if not, you know, as a as a patient, you can always call ahead and say. I need some extra time. I have some questions so that you can block out more time. And I think, you know, it, it all evens out in the end. Some some visits are going to be very quick. People are feeling great. They have no questions. So they have a very quick visit. And then someone early on in particular just needs more time to sort of go through it again. And, you know, I think most of us in oncology recognize that we usually run late because you just take the time that you need with the patient. Some will be quick, some won't. And you just have to be in the room at the time and really address what the patient needs. I love that you spent time on that, Dr. LaCase, because I feel like Lizette mentioned, a lot of people feel like they don't have that. But to hear it come from you, I think that then allows them to say, wow, there's doctors who really understand that this is part of the appointment. And, you know, there's, there's conversations that we can have outside just reading charts. So I think that this oh, is... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's really great that you, that you do that for your patients and have mentioned that so that our listeners can feel comfortable knowing that if they're not getting that from their current healthcare team, they have all freedom to pursue that and to find out who can really provide that comfort for them. Right. I mean, I think patients should feel like they have the time and the space to ask any questions that they need. And, you know, I think we want to know our patients as people and what the, you know, we need to know, are they able to do uh, their normal activities? Because if not, you know, that may be a sign that they have symptoms related to their disease or they have insomnia or some other issue that we could really help with to improve their quality of life. Because, you know, if you feel miserable and you're, uh, you know, watch and wait is really watch and worry. And that is not what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. I always refer back to this quote because <laughs> it's such a true quote. And it says, a good doctor treats the disease and a great doctor treats the patient. When you speak about and what you find important for these patients, that's what comes to mind when I think about how you probably treat your patients as well. (laughs) I hope so. But, you know, I think for us as providers, that's what we love about this job. I mean, it's the people that you get to meet and follow over many years. There's nothing like that relationship for us. And I think that is why we love this work, because you really do. And in CLL, you see patients over years and years, and it's just, it's really quite remarkable. Absolutely. Going into more depth about treating CLL, what are a few factors that doctors keep in mind and keep track of to properly treat a CLL patient? So when we approach treatments in patients with CLL, we have to look at a number of different factors. We look at, is the patient young and fit, or is the patient older and not gonna tolerate more intensive treatment? Then we also look at the chromosomes. So 17P deletion is the one that's really the most important, or P53 mutations is this testing that most oncologists will do um, either at baseline, but definitely at the time someone needs to initiate treatment or reinitiate treatment. And then we also look at the mutational status, what we call the mutational status of the immunoglobulin heavy chain genes, because this is another very important determinant of how to choose the right therapy. So. For patients who are young and do not have some young being under 65 or so, do not have a 17P deletion and are mutated, have mutated heavy chain genes, that is a unique subset of patients that over time we are now recognizing 
a subset of those patients may actually be cured with standard chemoimmunotherapy. So those patients we give fludarabine, cytoxin, and rituxan, and this is based on data from Europe and from MD Anderson. Um, the long-term follow-up of these patients looks like a good percentage of patients may stay in remission in the long-term. Certainly, you've got to follow people for years and years with this disease, but there does appear to be a population to do extremely well. For patients who are younger and are unmutated or have adverse chromosomes, then it becomes quite controversial as to what is the best initial approach. There's sort of two options. One is to use chemotherapy plus a CD20 antibody like rituxan. That's one option in patients who are not 17P deleted patients always go with a, a, a novel drug, and typically that is ibrutinib unless they have a reason not to get ibrutinib. Ibrutinib can cause irregular heartbeat and bleeding, so those are two things that we need to consider in deciding whether someone's an appropriate candidate for ibrutinib. But for younger patients who are unmutated but otherwise not 17P deleted, you can either give a course of chemoimmunotherapy like for instance, bendamustine plus rituxan or FCR, the fludarabine, cytoxin, and rituxan for time-limited therapy. Or you can think about using a novel agent. And at this moment in time, the novel agents are typically given sort of indefinitely because ibrutinib is a great drug and the vast majority of people will have a, a great response to it. It doesn't eradicate all the disease. So we typically, at least at this moment in time, are continuing to treat people indefinitely. For elderly patients, we don't use fludarabine, cytoxin, and rituxan because it is too toxic for the bone marrow, and patients' blood counts are sometimes irreversibly affected if you give them aggressive chemo. So for someone who's really frail, we might think about giving chlorambucil, which is an old oral chemotherapy drug, which has some activity, but it has much better activity if you combine it with a drug called obinutuzumab, which is an immune therapy drug that binds to CD20 that's on the surface of all the tumor cells. So that combination tends to be very well tolerated and is one option. Or we think about ibrutinib for older patients as long as they don't have bad atrial fibrillation or need to be on blood thinners where we think the risk might outweigh the benefits. There are other drugs. Um, so with 17P, regardless, they need an, a novel drug. But we have other alternatives. There's a drug called idelalisib, which is an oral drug. It tends to have a little bit more of a, a problematic side effect profile. It can cause bad diarrhea after patients have been on it six to nine months. So you sort of have to look at the patient and the characteristics of the disease in order to pick the right potential options. And then in sub-situations, it's a discussion with the patient. Do you want time-limited therapy or do you want indefinite therapy? And I think on the next one, we're going to talk a little bit about clinical trials, and I think that's where this field is moving to really figure out how can we combine these drugs in order to give time-limited therapy that is very effective. So when will a doctor consider stem cell transplantation for a patient? So we consider stem cell transplantation a lot less commonly uh, than we did in the past. So we would consider for a patient typically who has 17P deletion, and is, you know, you have to be able to get a patient to good disease control in order to have an allogeneic stem cell transplant. So we wouldn't do it in front line, so that means we wouldn't do ibrutinib and then immediately take a person to transplant in most situations. We would typically wait until they had relapsed and gone on to second line treatment, you know, with drugs like venetoclax. 
and when they're on venetoclax, you know that they're very likely to have a good response, but you may not have another option to get them into remission to think about a transplant. They don't have to be in a perfect remission, but the disease needs to be under good control. For patients who, for whatever reason, are intolerant of other drugs or their disease is really acting aggressively and is refractory to novel agents, those are also patients we would think about transplant. The other setting is Richter's transformation. So any patient with CLL has a low risk of developing a fast-growing or aggressive non-Hodgkin lymphoma or rarely Hodgkin's. Those patients who get non-Hodgkin lymphoma Richter's transformation, we often try to get them to an allogeneic transplant as well, particularly if they've been previously treated. That's a hard disease to treat, but we do try to get patients to transplant. Is transplant the only curative therapy since most therapies are to prolong remission? Those younger patients who are mutated, FCR may be curative in a subset of those patients, but that's you know a relatively small percentage of those patients, and that's something that we've recognized fairly recently. But for everybody else, yes, transplant is we have the most data for transplant being potentially curative. You know, CAR T cells, chimeric antigen receptor T cells, are in clinical trials. Initially they were done in CLL and then kind of moved away a little bit, I think, as all of these novel drugs were being developed. But now there's sort of renewed interest in CAR T cells, so that potentially may have curative potential, but we're going to need to watch patients over time to see how those trials look. And a test that we always hear often for treatment of CLL is the FISH test. Can you go into what that is? So the FISH test is fluorescence in situ hybridization is the the technical term, and it basically looks at the chromosomes within the tumor cells. It's not looking at the chromosomes in the patient as a whole. It's specific to the tumor cells. And there are certain patterns that are very common in CLL, the most common being loss of part of chromosome 13, what we call 13Q deletion, which is actually associated with favorable outcome, trisomy 12, so having an extra copy of chromosome 12 is common, then the ones we're really most concerned about are deletion in uh, chromosome 11Q, or most uh, worrisome is deletion in 17P, but there are some others, and those results really help us pick the best therapies for patients. Right, and you mentioned so many treatment options for people with CLL, but how is the treatment considered for relapsed or refractory CLL? So then you need to look at what therapies they've had before. So for patients who've had ibrutinib, venetoclax is really a very exciting drug. Uh, It has the unique toxicity of working so well that it can cause what we call tumor lysis syndrome as the cells are destroyed very rapidly. The debris can actually clog up the kidneys or cause difficulty for the patients which uh, it sounds like it's a bad thing, but it it means that the disease is responding really very briskly to the drug. So we've gotten a lot of experience using this drug in combination with rituxan or by itself. And aside from tumor lysis, it's actually very well tolerated. It can cause some low white blood cell count, but that is a very good option. And then there are a lot of clinical trials for patients with relapse or refractory disease looking at novel drug combinations, so things like combining ibrutinib and venetoclax, or if they've already had ibrutinib, you know, there are, there are a lot of other classes of drugs we're looking at, other BTK, novel BTK inhibitors. We're looking at imids like, you know, lenalidomide. There are some newer versions of that class of drug. There are some bispecific molecules targeting 
CD20 and CD3, so trying to get an immune response. There are really uh, a lot going on in clinical trials, and anyone who has relapsed refractory disease, I would definitely highly encourage those patients to check out some of the clinical trials because they're great options, and a lot of these studies are looking at if patients no longer have any detectable disease by minimal residual disease testing, they may be able to come off treatment altogether. And I think this field continues to really move forward in a very rapid pace. All right. Well, thank you so much, doctor, for speaking with us about CLL today and sharing such great information, not only with us, but with our listeners. And we'd also like to thank you for what you do for your patients and for truly living out your dream job and saving lives. It sounds like a win-win to me. (laughs) It is. It's a win for me. (laughs) We're sure our listeners will learn just as much as we did. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.